Well, evening, everybody. Good to see you. I want to invite you to turn in a Bible to the middle in a large book called Isaiah. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 35, and we're going to talk about joy. As we get going, it brings me joy to see all these students here this evening, front and center, mildly intimidating me, but love you guys. It brings me joy to welcome Dr. Cameron Sinclair. It's official now. Cameron walked and was hooded, right? That's what happens with your PhD at the great University of North Texas Friday evening. It also brings me joy to see that little one trying to give Isaac an eyebrow wax. That brings me much joy to see that happen. And I'm using this mic because he scratched that one so much. And No, I'm just kidding. It's so good to be God's people together. Hopefully you're there with me in Isaiah chapter 35. I'd like to read God's word together. Would you hear this glimpse of God in Isaiah? The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, which is a flower, it will burst into bloom It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be open, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. Little play on words there. The way of God walking on the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. Maybe yours says, even fools can't get lost on the way. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion, which is the special name of Jerusalem, God's city in all its glory. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is the word of God for the people of God. And so we say, thanks be to God. What a remarkable vision. What a remarkable glimpse 
of God when joy overtakes the desert wasteland. Before we get into that, show of hands, if you remember a show called Extreme Home Makeover. Okay? Extreme Makeover Home Edition, right? Because not everyone raised their hands, let me give you a brief rundown of the weekly formula for America's favorite feel-good show in the early aughts. You ready for it? First, they'd select a family, but not just any family, a family that helps so many others that they don't even have the time or resources left to take care of their own house. So this is a family that does a lot of good for other people and lives in a place like this, right? Isn't it the old joke that the plumber is out there fixing everyone else's toilets, but his own toilets and sinks are backed up? The carpenter is out there building for everybody, but not so much in his own place. These are wonderful families that live in a shack, basically. So they get the surprise of a lifetime when they learn that they're getting a home makeover. And then the family is quickly whisked away in a limo, right? Y'all remember that? Where would they go? Disney World, right? So they get a vacation that's well-deserved and well-earned. And while they're out there doing the teacups and the Pirates of the Caribbean, this design team descends upon the house and they're dreaming and scheming. The Carpenters and Ty Pennington. Y'all remember old Ty? I remember him from that uh, show, Trading Spaces. Y'all remember that? Greatness. Yes. So eventually... The family returns from Disney World and they turn the corner for their street and what do they see? Droves and droves of friends and family and neighbors and they're all going, yeah, yeah. So they're starting to get excited as they turn down and they wind their way back to their house. But as the family gets out of the limo and situated, what's in front of the house? The bus. Somebody is getting fixer-upper with the picture confused. Before there was the greatness of Fixer Upper, there was the greatness of Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and they couldn't afford a big old cutout of a picture. They had a bus, and the bus was parked out in front of the curb, and the family situated behind it, so excited to see what lays in store. And finally, the crowd shouts, what? Move that bus. And the bus moves revealing this. Okay, maybe this is Buckingham Palace. But there's a reason they called it extreme home makeover. Because they took that shack and they basically turned it into something like this. My favorite part of the show is when they start walking through the house and they see these incredible living room and the dining room and the kitchen, and then they go back to the kids' room, and then the designer sitting down there said, Johnny, I saw a little spaceship in your room. I bet you like space, don't you? (laughs) So Johnny's like, yes. Well, Johnny, we actually outfitted your room as a working rocket ship with a zero-gravity chamber, and enjoy. And little Susie, you like monkeys, right? We've outfitted your room to be a tropical rainforest. 
And then mom and dad, remember when y'all did your honeymoon in Paris? Here's a replica of the Eiffel Tower and the bistro where you got engaged and move into the ensuite where it's a working sauna and there's a massage therapist on hand. It's ridiculous, this thing. Do you remember what I'm saying? The kids' room especially. It's like a full-blown jungle gym in there. And they earn the name Extreme. So the family loses it, especially because it's beyond their wildest dreams. It's not just a reversal of like, here's one house that has kind of gone down over the years and we kind of restore it to its glory. It's not just a reversal of like the bad back to the good. This is a full-blown restoration, renovation. Now, Isaiah's poem that we just read is Israel's version of extreme home makeover. If you look at chapter 34, you see the shack. You see a wasteland inhabited by jackals and thorns. And then comes the extreme renovation of Isaiah chapter 35. You need to understand that in the Old Testament, God's family, the Israelite family, they were living in a shack. But it was a shack of their own making. They were supposed to be a family that was serving the world, that was a light to the nations. Before Jesus came and said, you were a city on a hill and a, and a light shining in the darkness, this was God's dream for Israel, God's people way before Jesus. They weren't hacking it. They had turned their back on God, turning toward other gods, and they had turned their back on their neighbors, the poor, the needy, the left out. And so God sent prophet after prophet to turn them back to the way of God. But it was eventually time for their makeover. But it was not so fun as an episode of Fixer Upper or Extreme Home Makeover. For years, God had been patient with them. This is the story of the Old Testament throughout all the books of history. You see First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles detailing king after king after king failing to live up to God's call. And then you see a people failing to live up to God's call. And he says, listen, you keep choosing death over my life and you're gonna get what you ask for. From day one, God is patient trying to bring them back but they keep choosing to go their own way. So eventually, it's time for the surprise makeover, except really, truly, it wasn't a surprise. Prophets had been warning about this for years. But instead of getting shipped off to Disney World, enemy nations come in. They burn down the homes. They kill men, women, children. They ransack the city of God and they cart God's people away to exile. You can't understand the Old Testament without understanding their failure of their vocation to be God's family, resulting in an exile that eventually leads to a dream of coming back home. To add insult to injury, while they're away from home in exile, the enemies, not Ty Pennington, Come and live in the smoldering ruin of Jerusalem and Israel 
and the southern kingdom of Judah. Chapter 34 is that picture. Chapter 34 imagines a hellscape, a dystopian reality, a wasteland for death and demons and jackals. It's poetic language, but it's language that speaks of the pain of the desolation and despair we feel when things just completely unravel. So the questions loom over God's family in exile. Can we really ever come home? Have we blown it way too badly this time? How many of us feel sometimes that surely God won't take us back after this one, right? God's people are wondering, if there is a home left, what's left of it if we ever can return? Some of us may be thinking, after a spate of bad news, a year of hardship and difficulty, when you're so used to death and disappointment, why would you ever expect life and good news when all you experience, it seems, is death and despair? If all you're living is chapter 34, you need to understand what a shock 35 is. Isaiah has a glimpse of joy that's out of place in a dark season. You need to understand that all the renovation language in Isaiah is typically at the end of this huge book, chapters 40 through 66. The first half of Isaiah speaks to the desperate nature and darkness they're living. This is a word that's out of place. Tonight, I want to give you a word that's out of place. Tonight, I want to continue to paint a picture, a glimpse of God with Isaiah's words that reminds you that another world is not only possible, another world is here, and another world is coming in fullness. That's what Advent is about. So the answer to these questions that I want you to understand, can we ever really come home? Can we ever really expect renovation? Can we ever see life in the midst of darkness? Will this season ever end? The answer is yes, and actually even then some. This is the Christian story. The story didn't end with the exile. The story ends with God's remarkable renovation that is nothing short of their wildest dreams and then some. God is faithful to keep his promise to a faithless people. God is faithful to keep his promise to you. And if you're still living in darkness, it means he's not done yet. God will come and make over the wasteland. So Isaiah paints a picture of a renovation far beyond any dreams of a simple restoration. We see a desert bloomed, a people healed, and a wilderness transformed. When we read this, we've got to say, man, is this too good to be true? And y'all need to understand, it kind of is. You with me? So before we get too far into this chapter, you need to understand that for Isaiah, his vision goes beyond a historical return of a few Israelites that survived the enemy invasion. There will be people that return home and rebuild the temple and rebuild the wall. That's the rest of the story of the Old Testament. But there's still this darkness that looms over them that says, yeah, but it doesn't quite feel like the joy of Isaiah 35. 
So it must mean that Isaiah is not just talking about that historical homecoming. He must be looking beyond to the ultimate homecoming when God comes again to finish what he started and renew our world and our brokenness and darkness and his light and his life will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea as we looked at last week. So, This is a world that we're still longing for. This is a home that we're still waiting to see. This is what Advent is about. And I need you to understand this. The deeper your longing, the greater your joy when God renovates your situation. Understand that the longing and the waiting and the hurt and the want will not be lost and wasted. It's fuel for a fire that will spill over into joy when God's kingdom does come into your situation. The struggle is it may not happen when you want and it may not happen how you want, but ultimately I can stand here and look you in the eye and says that darkness and despair and difficulty right now will not get the last word. And here's the trick. If death comes to our doorstep, understand death doesn't get the last word. This is the Christian hope. And it's not just that our souls will go and be with Jesus, although that is true. It's that he won't even waste our bodies. That when God's kingdom comes in fullness, he will raise us from the dead just as he did Jesus. We will be like him, for we will see him as he is, is what John says in 1 John. He will not waste one bit of darkness and pain and sadness when he wipes away every tear from our eyes and says, it's not just going to end with you, I'm going to renew the whole thing. And the deeper our longing for that day, the greater our joy when we see glimpses of God's kingdom here and then. But trust that God will not waste it. He will renovate your situation. And it may not be how or when, but the deeper our longing, I think the greater our joy when God renovates our situation. So the question is, what are you longing for? It doesn't even have to be a big picture longing, like peace on earth. What's the thing that you're ashamed to tell your best friend is on your real grown-up Christmas list? What's that ache that maybe you're even afraid to bring to God? Now here's the question. Do you believe that God can actually do more than you could even ask or imagine? Paul speaks of this even when he's in jail. Which gives us a hint that joy must be deeper than our present circumstance and situation. Paul, who also said, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice, when he was in chains and in prison, must point the way to a joy that's deeper than our situation. Where God is using our longing to fan the flames of joy. Let me take a step back and try to illustrate this in some everyday illustrations. One Christmas, when I was probably in fifth grade, there was a present, like you've had a present, that is like the present, the ultimate present. Hopefully, you were able to get a lot of Christmas presents when you were growing up, and they were wonderful. They were fine. They were great. But chances are, you probably got that one, the one. You with me? My one was a BMX bike. 
okay? And it was chrome, which was cool because it was like a big kid bike. And it was a bike that tricked me into thinking I might actually do some jumps because <laughs> it was the X Games, it was the 90s, and man, I was going to rock it. So I had been feeding this hint for months. Santa, I didn't believe in at that time. Parents, who I'm hedging my bets. I need this BMX bike. Well, Christmas morning comes. I open up clothes. I open up Nerf gun, whatever. And it's great. And I'm like the whole time looking around the tree. Like, that tree's not that big to hide a whole bike. I don't see it. And I'm also thinking, I know that bike ain't in the garage because I've been checking for the last two weeks. And I'm struggling. And I'm that one kid that's a real snot that you don't want to be or see on Christmas morning that has this plethora of wonderful things around it and you're just kind of like, meh, where's my BMX bike? Well, my parents are very gracious. They let me squirm for a little bit, but then, of course, they wheeled in the bike. And I'm glad that YouTube wasn't a thing in 1992 or whatever because the freak out joy singing, dancing, and clapping would rival something prophetic in Isaiah chapter 35. And I think it, I appreciated it more because I had longed for it and hadn't received it. This spring, parts of California in their desert space experienced a rare super bloom. Do you see this picture? This is very lightly, if at all, doctored. These were brown, dusty hills of desert for years. And then the super bloom. Thousands of people came to take photos on their Instagrams because they're Californians and that's what you do. And they're freaking out about this because it looks like something out of the Wizard of Oz. And here's why these super blooms happen. There's three recipes. Prolonged dormancy or hibernation. The seeds are kind of holding on underneath the surface, but above the surface, just dry, dusty, nothing happening. So you've got these seeds dormant, hibernating under the surface. Then... The second ingredient is heavy rains, which doesn't happen a whole lot in California. We know this because we see the wildfires and things like this. And then thirdly, we see another thing that's very unusual for California, and that is an unusually cold winter. The three ingredients are this. A lot of hibernation and no activity. A lot of torrential beating down rain. And an extremely harsh environment. And then it's as if at one point all the seeds wake up after a season of darkness to a super bloom that they could see from space. This is a satellite image of the arid Californian desert as if creation that had been waiting and suffering and been beaten down upon finally wakes up Years ago, I knew a man through a halfway house ministry that I had become a part of, and a man that had started to come to Bible study classes, recovery classes, and this dude is the kind of dude that doesn't meet any strangers, and he was just that salesman type guy that was just a delight to be around. He was in his late 40s, 
and he had had a tough go at life. He had always been in and out of jail after a life of drinking and drugs and crime, and he had been really struggling until he gave his life to Jesus. It was a marvel to see him, even in the desperate situation, sharing a cot in a small room, in a halfway house, just trying to put the next foot together. He's learning to follow Jesus. He gave Jesus his life, which is the first and most important step. Students, you need to understand this. We talk a lot about baptism because baptism is the second step that we get to celebrate the inward transformation of saying, Jesus, I'm yours. I want to give you my whole life. And he takes you and he begins to transform you. So eventually we're celebrating with baptism. So this dude goes to the church that we were connected to in a pretty low-key, traditional, sometimes stuffy Baptist church, okay? No offense, that's my tribe, that's my people, but they stuffy. And this guy was into the baptistry and you knew that something was like electric because this guy was like, he was like amped up. We're kind of like, is he on drugs again? No, he's getting baptized. He's doing okay. So he gets into the water, and they put him down, and this dude bursts out of the water. It's like somebody put a panel that the pop stars would shoot up from. He jumps out of the water, and he has this long blonde hair, and he goes, and he slings that thing back like some WWF wrestler. And he gets us all soaked like it's Shamu at SeaWorld. And the whole place, God bless these stuffy, wonderful Baptists, erupt with him. Because you can't see that and not want to respond to that. And the other reason is because a lot of them knew the darkness and harshness and dormancy of the first four decades of his life, and they were able to see the super bloom in his heart from the inside out. You could see that from space, too. And it's got me thinking that I don't think the joy of Isaiah 35 is as possible without the darkness of Isaiah 34. I don't think the longing for my bike was enough to help me experience the joy of Christmas without not seeing it behind the tree. We know people that have longed for that thing, but it's that longing that stokes the flames of joy. When God's kingdom comes in fullness, it's a renovation far beyond any dreams of a simple restoration. We see a desert bloomed, a people healed, a wilderness transformed, and the deeper our longing, the greater our joy when God does renovate our situation. What if God's joy, just like my friend, could be contagious enough to awaken our joy? Four years ago at the Ecclesia Gathering, Bud and I were there in Delaware, and James Brian Smith, who's an author and friend of our church, who wrote the books, A Good and Beautiful God, A Good and Beautiful Life, A Good and Beautiful Community. Do you remember this guy? He posed a question to our church network that I haven't forgotten. Y'all ready for it? What if we really believed that God was the most joyful being in the universe? What if we really believed that God was the most joyful being in the universe. Have you ever thought of God 
as being the most joyful being in the universe? If I gave you a hundred words to describe God, where would joy fall on the list? And it's remarkable because when we read through the Old Testament, we see creation responding in joy to the joyful creator. And I think the reason why he asked the question, what if we really believe that God was the most joyful being in the universe, was for two reasons. Because maybe we don't think of him that way. And the second reason is, it might change us if we actually did. I think too many of us are carrying around an image of God who frowns more than he smiles. And I'm here to tell you, if you are in Christ, God is too busy loving and delighting over you to be wringing his hands and judging you and frowning at you. How would it change you if you allowed yourself to open up just enough of that window to your heart to let God's delight and love and smile and joy penetrate the darkness? Creation responds to the joyful creator and I think we might also. You see it at the beginning of 35. The desert will be glad. The wilderness rejoice, blossom. The crocus, that's a picture of them on the slides, are bursting like my buddy out of the baptistry. Then he speaks of Lebanon, Sharon, Carmel. Did you hear that? And you're kind of thinking like, Sharon? Who's he talking about? He's talking about the three most beautiful places he can think of. Okay, Isaiah 34, you see a wasteland, a desert, and a wilderness. And then he says, he's gonna turn that into Hawaii and Fiji and Alaska, or fill in the blank. Maybe for you it's Chipotle and <laughs> Chipotle and Chiloso. I like tacos and I'm hungry, I don't know. The most beautiful places you can imagine, he's going to transform creation Rejoicing in response to a creator. What about us? Here's the trick. I think darkness is the world's default setting. Darkness in our own hearts is our default setting. We don't want to believe that God is as good or as loving to send his son Jesus to rescue us, to show us how to live, to bring us life in place of darkness and death. We don't want to really believe it. But here's the trick. No one goes into a room at midnight to turn on the dark. You go in to turn on the light. God sees the darkness and the wasteland and the hellscape that we make and we inherit. And he comes to us to turn on the light. So, if God is the most joyful being in the universe, creation's responding to it, even in our faithlessness, he is paving the way for us to come home, and it is a party of joy. Now, how do we respond? Where are you longing for God to come on and turn on the light? What are you bringing into the room of your family? What are you bringing into the room of your workplace? What are you bringing into the room of your friend circles? More darkness or more light? If our image of God is one in which that the bad news and death is just how it is and that's how it's gonna be, we need not get a glimpse of renovation or restoration or joy. 
you're going to bring more darkness into our neighborhood. But if you dare to believe that God is the most joyful being in the universe, he is bending the world toward joy to look a lot more like Isaiah 35 than Isaiah 34, it might actually affect your present day reality. It might affect the way you sit in jail like St. Paul did. And you're able to say rejoice always because I've seen how dark it can get, but I've also seen how bright the light can be. God comes to us to turn on the light. Let's not go around bringing more dark. So here's what happens. In the middle of this remarkable poem, Isaiah interjects a get ready sermon, right? To a people eager to come home and enter God's kingdom. Let me bring it into our everyday terms. How often do we talk about the things that God should do and the things that should be, but then when God invites us to do something about it with him, we're unwilling to take the next step. I really wish that God would go and help them. I really wish that God would grow this in me, but we're not taking a step out, nor are we taking a sit down to stay near to the light or to bring the light into darkness. Whoops. How often do we pray for something, but we're still clinging on with our closed fists to our own expectations and bitterness and darkness that he wants to give us something, but we're not there with open hands. Whoa. Creation is responding and it's bursting out in super bloom. And then all of a sudden in verse three, he's talking about strengthening hands, strengthening knees. I feel like as soon as we start to see a glimpse of God, so come the excuses. My hands are too weak. God, I can't do this work that you've called me to do. God, my knees can't walk. No way can I make it all the way through that blooming, fertile desert with streams bubbling up. No way can I take this journey. My heart can't take it. I'm believing my worries, my fears, my anxieties. Basically, I can't do this alone. And Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, is insinuating exactly. You can't do it alone. That's why I've come. Do you hear this? I love the message translation of the passage right in the middle that we read earlier. Energize the limp hands. Strengthen the rubbery knees knocking in fear. Tell fearful souls, courage, take heart. God is here, right here, on his way to put things right and redress all wrongs. He's on his way He'll save you. All of a sudden, it takes all of our excuses. If we're able to look up beyond the darkness of our circumstance, to draw deeply from a well of joy, from the most joyful being in the universe, painting a picture of a kingdom come that is so much better than we could ever ask or imagine, and all of a sudden, we look to him and say, my hands are too weak, but God will strengthen it. I can't do this work to forgive, to love, to give, to serve. God will strengthen you. 
I can't grow joy and peace and happiness. I can't love this partner, my spouse, as well as I ought. Guess what? He's with you to strengthen you. My knees can't walk and take that step into that place or to go into that uncharted territory. God will support you. My heart can't take it. I fear what's ahead. God will save you. Salvation throughout the scriptures, if you really get down and do a real biblical study, you'll understand that at its root, it is always, always relational. It's not just belief that Jesus is Lord. It's walking with Jesus because he's your Lord. Salvation is a willingness, a capacity to stay in relationship with God because you can't save yourself, you can't walk by yourself, you can't breathe by yourself. So in him we live and move and have our being. And the more you stay close to the source of joy and life and light, you will begin to manifest joy and life and light. We want him to download grace and goodness and peace. And he's saying, No, we're going to learn that at a walking pace together. Oh, but maybe it'll be this book or this Bible study. He says, great, insofar as that is a tool, you're walking with me. He's always inviting us on a journey. Where do you feel weak, afraid, worried? Would you sit with him in that space And allow him to just give you glimpses of light and joy. To renovate those visions with a vision of kingdom joy. How will we respond to God's presence and joy? After Isaiah is done with his mini sermon, when we get that to be in relationship with God with us, there's a then. You see that in verse 5 if you still have your Bibles open? Then, when God comes to bring balance where there's imbalance and justice where there's injustice, to bring the kingdom in full, that joyful renovation extends to renovate broken people when God and his kingdom comes. Here's where we need to do some real talk. When you see blindness and brokenness and struggle and hurt and pain and poverty and cancer, When you see prayers go unanswered in our way and in our timing, I'm going to say, I don't think any one of us are immune to doubting God's kingdom presence at some point in our life. You need to understand that doubt comes with the territory. And I'm comfortable saying this because John the Baptist doubted when he was in a dark situation. In Matthew chapter 11, we find John the Baptist in prison. John was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. We're reading in some of the Christmas narratives. John was the one who was called and set apart to announce God's coming king. His whole life revolved around Jesus. And when he's in jail facing death, He says, wait a minute, is Jesus really who he says he is? So much so 
that he sends his disciples who are still ministering to him, caring for him on his death row. They go to Jesus and Luke chapter seven says, they asked him, John the Baptist wants to know, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Before this verse on your screen, Luke tells us this. Jesus, at that moment, listen up, cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, and gave sight to many who were blind. Okay? Let me just do that again. Ready? Disciples come from Jesus' cousin, a man of God, one of the greatest men that's ever lived, as Jesus says, wondering, are you actually God's king, or should I wait for somebody else? Because I don't have much time left. Jesus hears the disciples' question, turns around, and gives sight to a blind person. Touches and heals the diseased. Rebukes darkness and evil spirits in God's power. Then he says, he shows, then he tells. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. How often are we reporting what we've seen and we've heard to prove the point that God's kingdom actually is here? Despite all of your doubts, despite all the evidence to the contrary, I'm telling you, we've seen people healed. We've seen inoperable brain tumors shrunk. We have seen in our community dead men raised to life. We don't know why they waited to pull the plug and to take him off life support. We had all kinds of reports of how long this man had been brain dead with the slim chance he would ever come back, and if he did, he would never speak, talk, walk, work again. And they delayed pulling the plug long enough for God to raise him from the dead. And within hours was walking down the hospital halls. We've seen women in our church who are not here this evening cured of breast cancer, ovarian cancer. We've seen the gospel just in the last couple months, preached at the neighborhood table in three different languages, in English, in Spanish, and with Isaac's notes on a phone with a couple of our sisters shared with a deaf family. And until their ears are unstopped, we find ways to anticipate the day that will be by trying to break through deafness and blindness and ignorance and doubt and despair. So here's the work. You may not be immune to doubting, but please don't ever miss when God's kingdom comes. Don't move past it. Don't explain it away. Name it and say, this happened because Jesus is here. This happened because the kingdom of God is invading darkness. 
This happened in the smallest of ways when we bring balance and work to do what Jesus would do if he were in our shoes. This is the kingdom of God. When you forgive and give and love and listen, when you do these works, the kingdom of God is advancing and pushing back the darkness. And we don't just have to wait for it, we can work for it. Because he's with us. Speaking of John the Baptist, wasn't he the one that was sent to make the way straight for God's king to come? So Isaiah rounds out his poem with this vision of a highway, a highway in the desert. And any Israelite returning from Babylon and the enemy nations would have taken the long way around through an impassable desert. They wouldn't touch the desert, they'd take the long way home because you couldn't survive it. But Isaiah gets a glimpse of what it will look like when God's kingdom comes in fullness that all that wasteland will be a safe highway where it's safe to come home. God's kingdom has come in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's been growing like a mustard seed, and it is here in our midst today. But God's kingdom will come in fullness, and we will join not just the people envisioned by Isaiah, but a broader picture of every tribe, tongue, and nation. We will walk home in safety. God's people, the rescued and redeemed, the joyful. I love the end of it. When they reach the end of the highway home, in verse 10, they will enter God's city with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Does this not sound like the end of our story in Revelation? Does this not sound like a day in which every tear from every eye is wiped away and the deeper our longing was, the greater our joy will be because we've made it through safely home. We know people that have seen firsthand how dark our world can be, but we need to be people who choose to see how good it will be. We need to join Isaiah in a vision that is beyond happiness, which is good and a gift, but it's fleeting, it's emotional. We need to tap into the groundwater of something deeper because that's the birthright of God's people. Because it's on the screen here, the way I like to think of it is that happiness is a good and sweet gift of when you see kids jumping in puddles. It's right, it's good, it's wonderful, but then they go on their merry way. Joy is the groundwater that is ours because we've seen how dark it can be, but we trust how good it will be when God's kingdom comes in fullness and he renovates our situation. So I wanna close with this quote from theologian Frederick Beekner. That's a lot of text on the screen, but would you listen? Joy is home. God created us in joy, and God created us for joy. And in the long run, not all the darkness there is in the world and in ourselves can separate us finally from that joy. Because whatever else it means to say that God created us in his image, I think it means 
that even when we cannot believe in him, even when we feel most spiritually bankrupt and deserted by him, his mark is deep within us. We have God's joy in our blood. Father, we are so grateful for the kingdom that has come, is here, and is yet to come in fullness. We ask, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in our hearts, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our church. That your kingdom, your government, your politics, your will, your way would be done and invade the brokenness of our cities and towns. And that we would get glimpses of the light that is overtaking and dispelling darkness. That we would be people of joy because we've learned it from you. Our joyful Father. We pray that by your spirit, you would well up within us, in these people in this room, visions of not just what is, but what will be and what can be when we turn to you. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our King who has come and is coming. Amen. Amen. Tonight's benediction is by Aubrey Smith. May God grant you vision of his glory and joy and his sovereignty to sustain, shelter, and strengthen you. May you embody Emmanuel's presence in the places you serve, your works a declaration of his righteousness, your words an announcement of his kingdom, your life a story of his faithful and redemptive love. May your service be marked by the obedience and the trust of a life hidden in Christ. May your leadership take the shape of the cross, an image of the great expanse of God's love, forgiveness, humility, and sacrifice. May the Lord of hosts strengthen you to endure this trial, these trials. May you know your worship in your grief and resurrection hope in your despair. And may you entrust your whole self to the good purposes of your creator. God bless you with open eyes to see his work, open ears to hear his words, open hearts to receive his love, and open hands that give as generously as they've been given. May you courageously bear the light of Christ into the deepest darkness, which has not and will never overcome the light. All glory and honor to our victorious Savior. Now go in the peace of Christ.